Hello and welcome to Unstoppable. I'm your host, Kerwin Ray. And today we are back in Santa Monica, beautiful LA. The sun is shining. And I am talking to Mr. Unstoppable, Dan Leah, who is an internationally recognized expert in the area of sales, peak performance, and leadership. This gentleman became the number one field sales rep for Tony Robbins and led two national sales teams within the Robbins organization. In this episode, we talk about how he became the high performer that he is today, the importance of structure and discipline, and how door-to-door selling really set him up to be the man that he is today. And when I say that, I don't say this lightly because Dan was actually diagnosed with a terminal disease. And he stands here today living longer than what has been expected and showing up every day and continuing to fight on and inspire many people around the world. So for anyone who's in a situation or a circumstance right now where you'd like to learn how to become the number one performer, if you'd like to learn how to develop a level of resilience or grit, this is the podcast for you. We're going to talk about sales. We're going to talk about grit. We're going to talk about resilience. But we're going to be talking about it with a man who was told that he shouldn't even be here, yet he wakes up every morning still fighting the good fight and putting in the effort to make his own impact. This man is leaving a legacy. Ladies and gentlemen, Dan Leah, listen up. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business, but we do it from an immersive but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com so ladies and gentlemen it's my absolute honor and pleasure to welcome to Unstoppable. It should be Dan Unstoppable Leah. Dan, thank you so much for being here. Oh man, I'm on fire and I'm you, excited to be here. You are on fire. <laughs> and I can attest to that. We just had you in uh, Hawaii. Aloha, mahalo, um, niwi loa yes, for coming yes. all the way over there. And uh, yeah, you rocked the house. Yeah. Thank you. 200 plus K2s in a room with Dan Leah for three hours and they come out uh, uh, well done. Well done. And yeah. tasting even better. And life just seems to taste a lot better when you're around. So, mate, for those people who perhaps don't know um, who Dan Lear is, why don't you give us like the 20-second elevator pitch of who's, who's Dan Lear? That's a great question. I'm a, I'm a transcendental leader. I'm looking to help people get to the next level, whether it's in sales, leadership, peak performance, really just live a better life. So, you know, right now I'm focused on uh, I'm out there and doing keynote speaking, getting hired to do corporate keynote talks. So I'm, you know, helping, uh, uh, you know, the people out there moving the products and shooting the re- moving the revenue. But my goal is a little different. So I go in there and I get hired to do this. But I typically start in their psychology to change their mindset to help them sell. Mm. So my thing is, you know, you got to change your life before you can change your sales. You have to change your mind before you can change your sales. So. You know, in the corporate world here in America, they don't, they're a little not too great about touchy-feely uh, hiring people to, to feel better. Right. Yeah, but, yeah. They, but they, want, they want their people to increase their sales or their leadership skills. So if I can help them improve their mindset inside of a, a sales training or a leadership training, that's what it's all about. You know, it's interesting. I think that's where we align so strongly, you know, because my philosophy is you can give two people the same information, you know, one more, a, stra- a sales strategy, a sales process, 
a closing technique. One will go and make millions or tens of millions of dollars and the other one will fuck it up everywhere to Friday. <laughs> and the only difference really is is that six inches of grey matter and how we develop it and you know how we use it with the tools that we've got. So look, I, I, you know, I know a little bit more about your backstory, so I, I guess I've got some privilege here that the audience doesn't have. But um, you're, you're the peak performance guy. You know, you're the guy that you know, comes in when people require you know, what is required to step up at a whole other level. It kind of goes back um, beyond what you're doing now. Like you've, you've kind of been a, a high performer your whole, well, I'm gonna ask you, no one's born a high performer. Right. So what was it that happened in your early childhood that kind of led to you kind of creating this, this level of resilience and grit that you now use to not only motivate and inspire, but also, you know, live? Yeah, and and survive and thrive in a situation where most people would perhaps, you know, uh, yeah. quit and kick. The <clears throat> That's bucket. great. That's a good question. I, I think looking at my life, it has to do with how, how I was raised. You know, I was raised in a middle class family. My father was a school teacher. My stepmother was a school teacher. Really? Yeah. And okay. so you know, we were very middle class. Uh, yet I lived in a really really small town. Did you say stepmother? Yes. Yeah, right. Yes. So okay. my father divorced my we my father and mother divorced when I was six years old. Right. And so then I spent some time with my mom. Uh, my mom is an amazing woman and she lacked some disciplinary skills. Right. And so and I needed a father. So And you were quite a um boundary testing child? I really wasn't. I was a good I was a good kid. Yeah, right. I really was a good kid. I was um, raised Christian, so I was afraid to sin. Yeah, okay. I mean, seriously, that's how I was raised. So I was a good kid. Uh, but you know, I was starting to spread out a little bit. I was starting to, you know, do things like shoplifting and stuff like that. Yeah, right. Uh, But I was I was I just knew I needed a father. I went to go see my father like in the summer of my fifth grade year. My, I was living in Phoenix, Arizona at the time. I flew yeah. to see my father. Saw my father about once a year. And, uh, but I was like, oh my God, you know. My dad's kind of an interesting guy, great guy, but didn't really, didn't really want to have much part of me until I was older. Mm-hmm. Until I was old enough to, he could interact with an athletic, he's a big athletic guy. He was a okay. basketball coach, college athlete. So once I was, you know, sixth grade, he was like, okay, I'm ready for it. Now you can have a conversation, <laughs> let's have a chat. So yeah. I went out to see him when I was in sixth grade and you know, I just needed a dad. He's playing catch with me, he's doing things that I needed to do and so I was really compelled to, to move out and see him and I really wanted to move out there. And my, I told my mom and she's like, no, no. I mean, my mom and dad did not get along at all at the time. So I, you know, I didn't know what to do, I was in fifth grade and so I said, okay, I'm gonna go up my room and not talk to you anymore. So I literally was up in my room for a couple of weeks and uh, my mom said, okay, you can go. She thought I would come back. And that was a defining moment. That was just like, when I went to live with my dad, that's when like the structure happened and, you know, Discipline. like I talked back to my mom. Yeah. I didn't talk back to my father. Yeah, right. I mean, because I actually wanted to be there. Yeah. He goes, you don't want to leave? You don't want to be here? Get the hell out of here. Type yeah, right. You came here. And so I had rules to follow. And so there was no conversation about how I felt or I'm tired today or I don't feel like going to school. I don't feel like going to basketball. There was none of those conversations because my dad, like most people in my generation, his dad was in the depression, the great depression. And and so they had gone through everything. So just there's no talk and there's no excuses. So I had thought there was one way to get out of my situation and that was excel at sports. Right. And so that's. And it's interesting because that seemed like that was your dad's highest value as well. It was his highest value. Was that a point of connection for Probably, you? yeah. That's yeah. the connection we, the only yeah. connection we had was through sports. Yeah, okay. So he was well respected in the community as a, a sportsman, as a coach. Uh, and so that's where we, he and I connected. And, and I just, so all I, he, 
you want to be a great basketball player? Here's what you have to do. Mm. And so he broke that out for me. And so like, you need to work out every day, you need to do this, you need to do this. And so if I wasn't doing that, he's like, oh, you know, I thought you wanted to be a great basketball player. Don't be bitching at me if you're not getting any playing time. You know, that yeah, kind of, right. that's how he was. Yeah, okay. So that's how I grew up. And so there was no excuses, nothing. And so that really set the bar for how I, how I knew the rules of life. And it really worked out for me. So how important was structure and discipline and the introduction of structure and discipline when it came to you actually becoming quite competitive? Because you ended up going quite far with, with, with sport. How important was the structure and discipline and that introduction from your dad, not just in life, mm-hmm. but also in sport as well? It was just a, a nice, uh, I don't know how do you say it, it was just a, a kind of a flow state yeah. because to, in order to compete at that next level, it's all a structure and discipline anyway. Yeah, right. I mean, there is, there's you know, college sports, it's a job. You do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, that's it. And so what, what was the, the sport that you really uh, clearly shot in was basketball? Basketball, yeah. Because you're like seven foot eight. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, uh, I feel deeply insecure every time I stand beside you. I'm six, I'm six foot eight. So, you're six uh, foot eight, so you're, you're, you're a very large man. Yeah. Um, so at what point did you go, okay, basketball's for me. Was it just, did it just come naturally because of your height or? Well, I was a good, I was a good athlete. And okay. so I was playing multiple sports. I, I um, was a starting quarterback at uh, my freshman football team. No, kidding. I was a really good baseball player, uh, but I was growing. And so all of a sudden I was a freshman, I was six foot, and then I was a sophomore, I was six four. And so wow. my, my dad's like, look, you're good at all these sports, but the sport that you're probably gonna have the best chance to win at is basketball. And so it doesn't make any sense that you're playing quarterback or tight end on the football team and getting your bell rung yeah. and, and risking an injury when you know you can probably get a college scholarship. Because I'm not paying for your college, by the way. Oh, nice. No, seriously. Yeah. I mean, he let me know up front yeah. that if I wanted to go to school, I needed to figure it out. Okay, right. And so... <laughs> and so when did you double down on basketball? What well, it was, was it, it was just like, I guess it was after my freshman year, I played freshman football and, and then I was like, no, nah, that's it. So my next year, and, and I worked that hard that summer, and the next year as a sophomore, I started on my varsity basketball team, you know, and just started improving from there. So uh, I played baseball, I think, all the way through until I was a senior. Okay. But, uh, but that was the deal for me, and that's, it was just the discipline, the hard work, the, every single day doing what I do, and um, that just set the stage for where I am today. Yeah, right. And then you, you went on with your team, was it in um, college? Yep, so I got a college basketball scholarship, and then, yeah. you know, I went division, in, in, in you know, the States, there's Division One basketball, which is a higher level college, and then there's Division Two. And so yeah. I went Division One and to University of Toledo in Ohio, and right. I was 17 years old, and I was just getting my ass kicked, quite So frankly. did you have, like, kind of um, the view of you wanted to get into the NBA? I think everybody does. Yeah, I course. mean, everybody does. Yeah. I mean, you only, like, oh, my God, that's what I want to do. But okay. you find out real quickly that there's a different level of, of athlete. I mean, because that's all you know. You, you only know what you know. And so yeah. then you go to the next level, and you see all these great players. And so... So had you gone from a situation where you were kind of like the big fish in the yeah, little oh, pond? Oh, definitely, definitely. And you were like incredibly dominant, and then all of a sudden you went to college, and you were like, wow, hang on. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody that goes like Division One is probably the best player in their high school, if not yeah. ever. You know, I went to a small high school, so uh, we were, I was a, one of the best players ever at that school. Okay. But I got a, a scholarship, and a long story short, though, I go to that school and I barely play. And I'm fighting through this adversity because when you're used to starting every day and you're the superstar, yeah. and all of a sudden you're on the bench, it's a little bit of a shift. I didn't expect to start, no way, but I yeah. expected to, to get better. And it wasn't working out there for me. Um, so that summer I said, okay, I'm gonna, give it a, I'm gonna give it my best shot. So I went back to uh, Lansing, Michigan in the summer, Michigan State University. I, would, I just went there because I got a job working third shift and I was working all night. I'd go to work at like midnight, work to eight in the morning. 
go home, sleep a little bit, get up, go work out, go play basketball, go back to work, sleep. That's all I did all summer. And so wow. I lost a bunch of weight and I was really lean. I went back to school and I was playing well as a sophomore. And then I jammed my thumb and I was going to be out for quite some time. And, you know, at that level, I was just going to go down the depth chart. Mm. So we made the decision to transfer before Christmas. So I haven't played any games, which means I wouldn't lose any eligibility. Right. So I ended up going to a junior college and then a small school. Uh, and that's where, you know, I was ended, ended up playing and winning those national titles that really set my mind on a fast track for success. Yeah, right. So how, what was it like going from the situation where you were top of the field, so then you're like, holy shit, do I even exist to, did that mess with your head? It did. Yeah? It did. It was, um, was that when you started to develop a, a, an awareness around what a psychology was and how the importance of how you're thinking? At what point did that kind of enter the equation? Yeah, I don't even know if I was there yet. Okay. I just knew how I felt. I, I'll tell you a quick story. So I, I went to school. I went to school, you know, grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, big, big city. Then I went to live with my dad. who's in a small farming town. So I was in this, wow. you know, really kind of secluded, isolated. And, uh, I go out there to, to, to play, and, and uh, like I said, it was, it was, a, it was a challenge. But uh, you know, just having to fight through it, uh, I, like I said, just allows you to, to, to build mm-hmm. the strength that, that you need to. And so then we won the net two national titles, and again, that just shifted my mindset to wow, you know, anything's possible. Mm-hmm. You know, but I didn't. When I went to school at the small college in Kansas, um, my coach sent me to a psychiatrist. He was wow. a wacky cat. Yeah, right. he was a wacky dude, man. He was like the kind of guy who, he would. Uh, you've seen those gravity boots mm-hmm. that he'd be like. One first time I went to go see him at his house, he's, he's hanging, hanging upside, upside down, like down right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and back, you know, this is like 1987, so you're like, whoa, what the hell's going on? Here? Okay. <laughs> anyway, he was a crazy guy. He was poor communication skills, not socially uh, developed at all, but he was a great basketball coach, and he was psychologically, he he got it, and so he would always uh, create these positive suggestions, these language patterns that he would just throw out to you. I didn't know what he was doing. Mm. Like he would always say, hey, Lear, you're a winner. Stuff like that. He would say stuff like that, you know, just casually. You know, uh, hey, Lear, practice, uh, players that practice hard always play better. He would just say stuff like that, mm. just plant seeds. And then in the, in, the, in the games, you know, like it'd be one minute to go and we're down by one. He'd call a timeout and say, okay, guys, here's, what we're gonna, here's how we're gonna win the game. <laughs> And he would talk to us like that. Here's how we're going to win the game. Here's how we're going to go. Right, here's what we're going to do. Now, here's how we're going to win the game. Here's what we're going to win the game. Yeah. <laughs> like if, uh, when I remember, we're, we're literally playing for the national title. We got a guy in the free throw line. The other guy, the other team calls a timeout. And Fred, one of our forwards, goes to the free throw line. The other team calls timeout. And we're in the, free, we're in the huddle. And coach says, okay, after Fred makes his first free throw, here's what they're going to do. So he was always putting the positivity in there. Mm. I never really knew that. Hey, Lear, you're a great rebounder. You know, he would just say stuff like that. But he sent me to a psychiatrist to really improve my rebounding skills. And so, because I didn't have an identity of myself as a He's great, way ahead of his time. Way ahead of his time. Yeah. Man. So you can imagine, I'm like, I'm 20 years old, laying on a couch, <laughs> talking about, Tell my, me about your mom. my rebounding. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Not about my mom, about my rebounding. I was like, what? <laughs> and so then I really started to get interesting in that because he was, he was the one who told me like to you know, hang pictures on my wall in my locker of, you know, a great rebounder or someone that, that looked like a great rebounder to me or some words that, mm. that, you know, he was the first guys. They were to do that. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Okay. And that was the first time I ever heard of anything like that to improve yourself personally. Okay. I was in college. And so you, you went on to win two national championships. Yep. 
Uh, what happened? The NBA didn't come knocking. No, I was a good player, not yeah. a great player. I was a okay. I was a role player. So I was right. a, I was I played on a great team. Yeah, and I was the guy who could do everything, everything great or everything well, but nothing great. Yeah, got it. So I made the other team players better because yeah. I knew that I didn't need to score. I needed to pass the guy that ball. I need to get that rebound. I just did what I needed to do, and that was the intelligence part because yeah. there were four or five guys on the bench, Kerwin, that were more talented than I was. Interesting. Yes, but I knew what I needed to do to get in the game. Wow, and I can see how that pattern has played out in in, in your life. Yeah, like because you you left college. Yeah, and from there, at what point did you run into Tony Robbins? Yeah, so I got this first job. This is how where I got interested. This uh, is your first job with Tony, wasn't it? No, second job. Oh, second, second yeah, right. job. But okay. the first one I got, I had no idea. All I could do was shoot a basketball, Kerwin. That's yeah. all I could do. I didn't know anything. I mean, like. I didn't know how in the hell I was gonna make money. I just had no clue, I felt what so. What degree did you come away with? Uh, I, I was a physical education and recreation degree with an emphasis on phys, uh, physiology. Yeah, right. Which means I can, I, and I got, a, I got a teaching degree too, so I could go teach school, okay. and I could also teach, and then I went to college, you know, and then I got my master's so I could, I was gonna coach basketball, but um, um, yes, I forgot what you asked me. What'd you ask me? No, it was, uh, we were going to, you left college. Oh yeah, yeah. And then you, what was your first First job, job I got yeah. was with an insurance company called Federated Insurance. We okay. sold commercial insurance. And so what they did was they trained me in Atlanta. Uh, I got hired because I knew some people in uh, where I played basketball. Yeah. And some were insurance agents. Hey, I think you'd be good at this. I'm looking for, I don't know what to do. I, well, I coached basketball for two years and I decided I didn't like it. Okay. And then I, um, I got my master's degree and then I went to work for this company called Federated Insurance. They sent me to Atlanta, Georgia and they trained us for like ah, six months. But every, every lunch hour we'd sit in a room and it would be called Lunch and Learn. And uh, they would play audio tapes from Dennis Waitley, um, Og Mandino. Wow. I didn't know what the hell this was. Yeah, okay. And so the psychology. Old school. Right. Well, that's one of these people. That's right. Yeah, that's great, what, Og Mandino read the, the book, The Greatest Salesman, on, on, uh, the greatest salesman in the World. Yes, yeah. The Greatest Salesman in yeah. the World. And, and Dennis Waitley had this uh, audio uh, coma called The Psychology of Winning, I think it was yes. called. Yeah, and yeah. so I um, started listening to those and I was like, wow, that's pretty good. I've never heard about this stuff before. And that kind of turned me on. And, and you know, of course, then I'm seeing Tony Robbins uh, on, the, on the TV selling his personal power, you know, personal power audios at the time. Do you remember your first, your first time bumping into a Tony video or a to, the, the Tony brand? Well, just the, the infomercials here, they used to run these infomercials in the state with him and the guy named yeah. Fran, Fran Tarkington and then, yeah. and then Lisa Gibbons. And I'd always be- Duffy Renka, I think. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And I was always attracted to that, but I never ordered them. Okay. And then one time I was starting to work, I finally got through that training program and I started selling insurance and I'm like, well, hell, I don't know anything about business. So let me figure this out. Like, ordered those audios, three easy payments of $69.95. And that was back in the days where you had a cassette player. Mm. And I'd get home from work and I'd put the cassette in and that was the days you actually sat and pushed the cassette player play. <laughs> and I'd take so notes. So much friction. Right. <laughs> I'd, I'd take, it was a 30 minute cassette, I'd take notes and I'd do it every day for 30 days. And my income tripled that year. Wow. So I was, this is crazy. Here's a guy from a little small town who knew nothing about business, who was intimidated by people who wore suits. And that year, this was 1980, oh geez, what year was it? I don't know, a long time ago. But I made like $85,000 that year, which was more than my father and my mother combined. Wow. Incredible, I bought a house, all this kind of stuff. I was rocking. And all it was because I was the number one producer in the whole region as a 23-year-old kid. Wow. And it was all up here. All came down all the audios. All came down the audios and building that brain. Yeah, and the other thing though, that like you said though, like the little stuff that I got from my dad, like 
we had to go cold call. We had a cold call and nobody likes to cold call, right? But I didn't have any choice because I needed to make money and I didn't have any money. So I would just pack lunches. And so I just sit on the side of the road, eat my lunch and then go make more cold calls where my other buddies, they're going out to lunch and meeting each other and hanging out. I had a paper bag. I'd eat my, I'd eat my, my stuff and then I'd go make more cold calls. So obviously I made more cold calls and I got more So profit. you were actually knocking on doors? Back in the day, walking into businesses, wow. car dealers, yeah. uh, convenience stores. Uh, uh, and you did that for two years? I did it for about a year and a half, two years, yeah. They say uh, six months of door-to-door selling is equivalent to a two-year or two-and-a-half-year communications degree. <laughs> and I can under, you can understand why. Yeah, you know, It was like one of my first businesses was door-to-door selling, selling security alarm systems door-to-door. No kidding. And it was, yeah, it was like one of the toughest periods of my life. But how important was that situation? Because door-to-door, that's not a normal sales environment. It's not like you're in a retail shop where people are coming to you. You're knocking on doors and you're trying to sell things to people that didn't even know you were coming, let alone that you, they needed that product. An insurance agent, by the way. And you're selling insurance <laughs> on top of that, which is like the, the, the cherry on top. So I'm going to assume that you, re, you would have received you know, a lot of rejection, a lot of, a lot of pushback, a lot of... Did, at any point, were you like questioning, you know, like, why am I fucking doing this even? <sighs> You know, because I, I was so used to it. There was, like I said, there was, in my family, there was no talk back, no push back, no question. So right. there was, I had to go do this. And so just because people said no, it was just like, I didn't have any emotions. Yeah. I didn't have any like, oh, that made me feel bad. Because ne- feelings never mattered in my house. Wow. So it didn't really matter how I felt. It's like, what did you do? Okay. And that's how my father still is. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> We've never had a conversation about feelings ever in okay. my family, ever. And, wow. Yeah. We we should we should talk we should refer to that in a later conversation when you look at your your condition and, and this will be an edit but it's interesting that right now your condition creates a hard exterior around your heart yes it's almost like there's a level of protection there yeah kind of weird yeah, yeah bizarre and metaphoric metaphorically speaking <laughs> the body does tell us everything that's, that's really going weird. on yeah. yeah 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 so um you you're an insurance salesman for eighteen months and then you're like. I want yeah, to work so, for Tony Robbins. Yeah, well, I, I remember I was like, I, I got into Tony Robbins. I want to work for this guy. Sure. Like, I remember that. Well, I didn't even know that was possible. Yeah. All I knew was I ordered these audios and I tripled on the income. And yeah. I'm like, you know, I'm just doing my thing, but I'm positive. And I met this guy in Atlanta who worked for Tony Robbins. And so what he did was he was that field sales rep that would go into companies and give these little uh, workshops, these little sales workshops, and sell tickets. And so my buddy met this guy and he said, hey, Dan, you need to go meet this guy. He works for Tony Robbins. You'd love him. So we connected and uh, I was like, dude, I don't, I don't even know what you do, but I'd, what do I need to do to find a way to, to get in this mix? How do I do, do it this? With you. Yeah. And he goes, oh, just send a resident. Oh, you'll love this, man. You'll <laughs> love this. He goes, well, send, con- to contact my boss, Mike Husson. Yeah. And uh, you know, he'll, he'll get you squared away. So that his, Tony's offices were in La Jolla. So I'm calling this guy named Mike Husson. This guy would never answer my, never call me back, Crowen, ever. But I just knew how to do it because what, all I just did is called him every day. All I, and I love that. <laughs> all I just did was called him every single day. I just for 365 day. days. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand, but yeah. at some point and he, he fi- took my he call. He finally called me back. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, oh, hey. I hope man. fucking people are listening right now because there's a, there's a wealth of wisdom just in well, that one statement. Somebody asked me that the other day. I've got a good friend. He goes, hey, what do you do when a prospect or someone here just doesn't get back with you? I said, mm-hmm. that doesn't happen with me. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, well, I figured that out a long time ago. After about the third call, the second call, I was like, hey, listen, I didn't hear back from you. You must be traveling or, or maybe you're just busy. And uh, 
look forward to hearing from you. And, and on the third call, I just call him back and I'm like, hey, Kerwin, this is Dan. Uh, listen, I just want to let you know, I'm just looking to connect with you. And by the way, I wrote a book on persistence. So I'm going to be calling you every single day. So you might as well just call me back and let's get this thing handled. <laughs> I love that script. And I always get a call back. <laughs> I love that script. That's a, that's a script right there. Yeah, capture yep. that one. Yep, you yep. need to like fucking put a big highlight on that one. Below. Yeah. <laughs> and so they, they, they took you on? They recruited you? Yeah, so they, well, I, I kept calling him. He, and I finally got him. He goes, oh, oh, uh, listen, hey, we're not hiring, you know, typical push-off thing. But send us a resume and a video and we'll take a look at it. I'm like, what the hell? So I was a real creative guy. I was I was into video stuff way before the time. Wow. Way before okay. the time. So. This is in the eighties, I'm assuming. Yeah, man. Wow. Send a video. It's like, dude, who has a fucking? Video well, it was camera? a VHS. Yeah, it was a VHS. <laughs> and that was like it was a prized possession. Your parents were wealthy. If you had a video <laughs> well, camera. Nah. In the 80s. So like, well, I, you know, I was like 23, so I was like living out of my house. I mean, I had a house at the time. I was, you know, wow. successful with this yeah. insurance company, yeah. right? So. Um, I'm like, what the hell? But I, I made shit happen. I was, I was well-connected. I had some guy that was a video guy, and, and his name was Mark. And the Braves, the Atlanta Braves, which is a baseball team, just won the World Series. And they went from worst to first. And so they're having a big ticker tape parade downtown Atlanta, or a celebration. And I called my buddy Mark, and I said, Mark, let's go down to this parade. Let's interview people and pretend like we're with CBS Sports. He goes, oh, sure. Oh. So he's got the big camera like this. Yeah. We, we take the MARTA, which is their subway system, downtown to Atlanta. We, the door opens up. It is fat. It's so many people. And we didn't expect that. There was, and we couldn't even get to the road. So I was like, oh, excuse me, excuse me, CBS Sports. Excuse me. Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen. Excuse me, CBS Sports. And I walk right to the front. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, we're sitting there watching the cars go by. I'm pretending like I'm, you know, Ladies and gentlemen, here we are, worst to first, you know, I'm doing this whole thing, and, and I see a car coming, and one of those is a convertible uh, Mustang, you know, players are riding in it, and then there's, you know, they're doing this whole thing, and it's, the car's open, there's nobody sitting in it. So I said, Mark, follow me. I literally said, I just jumped in the car, he jumped in with me, and so we're sitting in this car, driving through the ticker tape parade, <laughs> while he's videotaping me and I'm waving to the crowd. So we have this all on video. <laughs> I still have that video. What an entrance. So I made this video for Tony Robbins. I'm like, hey, this is, uh, this is Dan Lear. Listen, I don't know what you're looking for, but I just worked from the Atlanta, worked for the Atlanta Braves. We went from worst to first and I'm just, you know, I'm BS and I'm just having fun with it, but I'm down in the ticker tape parade. And then I made this cheesy video of me saying, you know, like doing a little presentation in my kitchen, which just totally sucked. Uh, but it's hilarious. And I sent that to him, not to him, but to Mike Husson. Same thing, never called me back. Kept calling, kept calling, kept calling. Finally, oh, hey, listen. Oh, yeah, you're the guy from Atlanta. That was a great video, but we're not hiring. Maybe next year. So I called up my buddy Scott back, and I said, dude, I'm getting pushed back. He goes, hey, have you ever seen Tony Robbins live before? And I said, no. He goes, well, come out to Anaheim, California. Come see me, and I'll take you there. Because Scott was working for him. He goes, I'll, I'll sit you there, and, and maybe if Mike's there, you can you know, introduce yourself. I said, great. So I flew, flew from Atlanta to, um, to Anaheim, California. I'm sitting at the program. Um, Scott gets me and says, hey, Mike, my boss is at the back. He goes, Dan, my boss Mike's at the back. I go back to him at the back of the room. And this is in the days when the PAC seminar had like 1,500 people. This is a huge seminar of 1,500 people with Tony Robbins. Now he's like, like 30,000, right? Yeah. And so I walked to the back and I walk up to him and I said, hi, Mike. I said, my name is Dan Lear. I'm here for my interview. He goes, oh, excuse me? He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm Dan Lear. You know, the, oh, Dan. He goes, yeah, I'm here for my interview. He goes, you kind of paused. And I said, well, I came all the way from uh, Atlanta, so I'm sure you have a couple of minutes for me, right? 
<laughs> and he That's goes, a good sure, sure. And he comes out, we start chatting in the back. He, we just walk out in the hallway. Hour and a half later, he invites me to dinner. Got hired. Wow. That was it. And that's the same thing. It's persistence. It's the mm. same thing as not seeing the no, not seeing the, the detour sign, and not letting your feelings get hurt. Mm. And so, you know, you can look back at your childhood and say, oh, you know, my dad was such a dick. You know, he never said he loved me. And, you know, he never held me and asked me how I was feeling. And um, I thank him for that. Mm. You know, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. You see the gift. Yeah. Yeah. And so you you on board with Tony, and how long did it take you to make your mark yeah, as the number one producer? I probably about a year. Okay, I was figuring it out. I had no skills, so I was okay. figuring it out. But I was a learner. I knew how to do it. I knew how to play basketball. I knew if you learn the fundamentals and you start stacking them, yeah, it becomes unconsciously competent, and then you can do it because I knew how to actually learn it. The other guys were just like, I thought they were just like BS, and they were just like kind of going in there and doing a different thing every time. No, I took a script that I was given and I friggin' memorized it like almost word for word, because when you, when you play somebody's notes, when you play them enough times, they become your own notes, mm. right? So you tell the joke enough time, it becomes your own joke. So I took these words. Honestly, that's so important. And I see it? so many people fucking it up because, you know, and the example I use is, is Braveheart. I think, you know, um, Mel Gibson won an Academy Award for that. Oh, yeah. You know, where he's on the back and he's like, you can take our lives, but you can't take our freedom. And I'll often play that in our seminars. I go... Do you think he fucking winged that? <laughs> do you think he winged it, really, or right. do you think he had? A, do you think he had a script and he practiced those lines over and over and over and over and over? Yeah. And do you think that's a challenge for a lot of salespeople? Like they, I do. They might be fundamentally good salespeople. Yep. But there's no consistency there's no. because they're not using the same language every single time. Every time. And I think that was the beauty of what I did with Tony because we were in there, giving us presentation every day, and that's where you develop your skills. And then at the end. Uh, where it's time to close, if you will, in the sales portion, you're doing it every day. Mm. So you get live feedback. Here's what's working, here's what's not working. And you know, salespeople oftentimes aren't selling every day. They'll be pitching or promoting, but we were in live sales situations two or yeah. three times a day. And so that's what developed the skill set. And I, and I know someone out there's gonna go, oh yeah, but I can't use this, I don't wanna use a script because I don't wanna sound like a parrot. You know, I don't wanna sound, it's like, well, hang on a second, again, did Mel Gibson sound like a parrot? Yeah. And I don't know if this is um, something that you did, but this might be something of value for other people who are listening right now. Um, when I, um, uh, one of my first businesses was the alarm, selling alarm systems door to door. I was like 20, 23, had a team of 45 guys. And one of the things that I used to do is I used to bring in scripts from movies every day and would have an hour and a half training. And of that hour and a half, normally about an hour of it was role playing, but of that role playing would do 30 minutes role playing with movie scripts whereby we'd give them a script and they'd say, okay, you're gonna be Neo for today and you're gonna to play this scene. And I'd be like, why am I, you know, why am I, why am I playing a character in a script that has nothing to do with sales? I was like, well, the reality is the character you're playing in your life right now isn't producing the results. So you, you, you haven't got a role of any value <laughs> in sales. So what we need to do is we need to, you need to become adaptable. And so we'd get people to you know, learn how to become Neo or learn how to become you know, a different character in order to then put the new character into the script that wasn't them. Because it's like, the guy you are right now is not gonna- That's brilliant. He's not gonna close sales. So we need to develop that character. So look, I don't know, hopefully that's of benefit to somebody. I like that. So you, you started crushing it, took you a year, you became the number one producer. Yeah, I was the number one producer just by changing the way I thought. I told the story at your yep. K2 event where I was doing a, I was doing a pitch or a, uh, a presentation. We took uh, our, our peers with us to give us feedback and he asked me, dude, do you really believe in what you're doing? I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, you're letting people off the hook really easy at the oh. end. 
because you know, our goal is to sell tickets yeah, to go see Tony that's, Robbins, that's so, good. right? And he's like, well, I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, I came to the end and you're passing out these forms and asking people if they're gonna go and you get a couple objections and you let them go. And I had to really think back and I'm like, oh my God, you know, my dad hated salespeople. Um, mm. You know, we weren't talking about selling at the kitchen table. We're not talking about scaling or entrepreneurship. We're talking about bureaucracy and teaching and about following rules. I mean, just, you was know. Was your dad Christian as well? Well, not, not really. really. Not really? Just, okay. just, but just, you know, just a, a school teacher. And so there wasn't, you know, outside thinking and all that kind of thing. And so, you know, I, I uh, that's that's kind of what transpired. And, and so, um, I'm sorry, I lost track again. What, no, were, you, what okay. were you talking about? So you, you went on to become the number one oh, yeah, yeah. producer? Yeah. yeah, so then he said, you know, you're not, you're, are you, um, do you really do you really believe in what you do? And I said, why? And he goes, well, you're letting people off the hook. And so I literally, that night, just changed my mentality. Like, oh my God, because he said, what if, what if the person you'd let off the hook, what if that person that you didn't close, really the one thing they needed to send their daughter to school or to save their marriage was to go to see Tony Robbins that day. And you didn't, you didn't get them there. Mm, and that this. really crushed me. I'm like, holy mm. shit, here I'm trying to help people and I'm letting them off the hook because it all made sense to me then because everybody wants to get better but they can't help themselves. So I went in and did the same talk the next day but at the very end, when I'm closing them and they're giving me excuses, I'm not hearing it and I'm just using my skills to turn them around and go ahead and sign up, go ahead and sign up and all of a sudden my sales start exploding and I became the number one producer. And that's when he put me, uh, he, I was the team leader, the quote unquote manager, the leader. So I trained all of his salespeople. I hired all of his speakers, trained all of his speakers. And I traveled with two teams, uh, filling up the UPW and then our one day program, the mm. competitive edge. Yeah, so, right. So that was crazy. And then he had me doing these guest events where uh, back in the day, there was a big stock market boom where all this money was getting made on options and all this stuff. And so Tony was doing this program called Financial Power. And so after a one day, one day event, he would invite people to come back three days later to a special guest event where we're gonna be talking about making money. And so I would be the guy at that event afterwards. So three days later, I'd come mm. back into town, there'd be four, five, six hundred people there, and they think they're gonna to see Tony Robbins, but they're seeing me. <laughs> this is the genesis of Wealth Mastery, isn't it? Yes. 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 Yeah. And so that's when my skill set blasted off because if people are expecting Tony Robbins and they get you, you gotta be really good. Yeah. <laughs> really fast. Yes. So yeah. I learned from the best and I, you know, I gotta deframe that. I'm like, I'm not Tony Robbins. So yeah. that, you know, they knew that up front. Um, uh, but that was awesome because then I got to speak in front of bigger crowds and be able to close higher ticket items. The right. program was six grand that we were selling at the time. So that was awesome for me. Yeah. And so, that, you know, it changed my life, man. That's And how long did you end up staying with Tony? Until 2000. So I was with him for six years total. That's a long time. Long time. Yeah. And that wouldn't have happened. Uh, most people only last about 18 months. Yeah. But okay. my situation was different because when I first got hired, I started dating this woman and then she got pregnant. And then... All of a sudden she wanted to have the baby and I didn't want to just like leave her. And so I was like, well, come with me. So here she was, this girl that I, I knew a little bit and all of a sudden she's traveling with me on the road while she's pregnant. Oh, wow. And she has a baby. Uh, after she had the baby, about six months later, we got married or maybe a year later we got married and then we're still traveling on the road and then we have another baby. So I have two kids while we're oh traveling. Oh my God. So that's why I that's waited six tough. years. I was yeah. like, I'm not leaving here until I'm exactly where I need to be. Okay. So I was just saving up money and developing my mindset so I could blast out of there. So that's an interesting statement. I wasn't gonna leave until I was ready. In your mind, 
and, and this is one of the things I love about your story, and I think a lot more people should take lead, especially younger people listening to this who want to go out and fucking, you know, start a di- I'm going to go and build a digital agency. I haven't worked for anyone else. I want to become, a, you know, a great salesperson and sell my product, but they've never sold anything before. You know, I think one of the greatest, you know, ways that we can learn to develop ourselves is go and work for the people that we want to be like. Yep. You know, and yep. go and, and I did this with Tony, but I got on his security team. Like, I wanted to get as close as I possibly could. Um, so in your mind, what was the, what, what, what were you, what was the goal? Like, you're like, I'm not leaving till I'm ready. How did you know that you were going to be ready? That's a great question. And and I think that fools a lot of people. Mm. And I'll give you an example. So the first year I spoke for Tony, I sucked when I, well, I didn't suck, but I wasn't great. And then at the very end of the year, I was like, man, I'm pretty good. And so a lot of people left after the first year. Well, I came back the next year. And then after the next year, I was like, damn. I'm pretty good. That first year, I sucked. And then I, you know, here I am, I got kids going on, then I stayed another year, and I'm like, damn, I really sucked last year because I'm much better now. So I saw myself elevate, even though I thought I was really good. After I stayed, I saw, and I saw other people leave and they would flounder because it's much more difficult mm. than you think it is to go out into oh, the world so and generate revenue yeah. on your like own. I've been with Tony for six months, 12 months, I now got everything. Yeah. I got personal power. Yeah, that's, you, know, you ain't like, got yeah, nothing, dude. pal. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I wanted to make sure that I was just bulletproof yeah. and I was ready to go. I, could, I probably so could have left smart. earlier, but I didn't. You know, but that's so smart. And again, because I see this in my business as well, and I'm, I'm open and I'm sure you are, you know, people come in because they want to learn, yeah. they align, but they stay for six months and they think they've got everything they need and then they, and then you see them flounder and you're like, oh man, if you'd only given us another two years or three years, yeah. you would have left and you would have become a multi, multi, multi-millionaire right. yeah, in the process. Yeah. And so you, the six-year mark, you're like, okay, I'm going to spread my wings. That would have been a little scary because you would have had the, the safety and the, certain, the yeah. certainty <clears throat> of time. You know, it was a really weird thing that I've never talked about before. Okay. I've never talked about before. And, um, you know, Tony's got a, he's got a great organization and there's a, you know, like a, a little bit of a, how do you want to say, a cultish. And I don't mean that in a bad way, because any type of um, any type of organization is kind of a cult. Yeah. And I don't mean, you know, cult is not a bad word. Well, no, if you look a, at the word culture, right. the root word of culture yes. is cult. And so, yeah. but inside of there, sometimes there's some things that aren't great. Like sometimes, like if you look at uh, superstars in the U.S., like uh, entertainers, they get protected by their group, mm-hmm. so they never hear the truth. Yes. That type of thing. So yes. it's a little bit like that, where... I mean, Tony's amazing, and uh, you know he's my mentor. And sometimes he gets protected where people don't tell him the truth. He's only as good as the information he's got. Yeah. yeah, and so he had a lot of loyal people. He took loyalty over talent all the time. Right. All the time, because he had, I think, a lot of people burn him over the years. Yeah, okay. So I was on the outside. I didn't work in the home office. I was out in the field selling, but I was his number one guy. I was the guy that when he came in to flew, flew into to do the talk, he, you know, I'd go up to his you know, sweet, and we chat about what's happening, what about the team, what happened, who's doing what, who's not doing what. So I got to know him much better. I'd see him every, you know, every month and spend time with him like that. And, uh, but it, it got to be a weird thing because uh, there was a time where his CEO called me on the phone. He was questioning my leadership. This is while you're in. Yeah, while yeah, I was right. with Tony, I was managing two teams, right. flying back and forth while I had two kids. And I was handling a whole bunch of stuff. There was a lot of things that weren't really organized. So I was managing a lot of stuff to make it look good for our guys mm-hmm. out in the field. And he was questioning my leadership, this guy, I won't say his name, but then I went back to Tony. I'll never forget it. It was after the event. And he's like, he's like, dude, what's up? He could tell something was wrong with me. And I'm like, ah, you know, he said, so-and-so just called me last week. And I said, I tell you what, I said, if, if that's your leadership, Tony, 
if that's the one that's leading your ship, I, I don't think I can, I don't want to be around here. Wow. He literally called that guy right there on the phone. And that was the start of my exit. Oh, okay. That was the start of my exit. Okay. So there was all of a sudden all these things that started coming up like, hey, what's all of a sudden I was start, they were watching me. What's going on every day? What are you doing with your time? And calling the people on the, on the field going, hey, what's Dan Lear doing today? Because I was running the show. Yeah. And so it was really weird and I could feel this vibe coming out and I decided to, to leave. And, and so I met with Tony and he had been filled with all this information that wasn't even true about me. So I was like, look, dude, I said, I don't, I don't know what you know. And he goes, well, you've been incredible. You've been here for six years, dude. You've been amazing. He gave me a, a $30,000 severance pay when I left. Wow. He, had, he had never, ever, ever done that for an FSR, ever. And his, his home office was pissed. And so that's kind of how I left. Mm. And so there's some weird vibes going on. So it's on. bittersweet. It's bittersweet yeah. I mean, because I have great feelings for him. Yeah. I know who he is. He's a good dude. Um, and the people that are there, that they have good intentions. And so, you know, during the time that I was there, was a weird transition time. He was yeah. just, you know, Blowing starting up. to get better. I mean, he wasn't, that was prior to Oprah. Yeah. That was prior to all that stuff. So we were still. He's had a few waves. He oh, yeah. It'll go up and then it'll palato and then the Oprah and then. Yeah, I mean, he's, the, you know, he's, he's incredible. So, you know, just no negative vibes on him. It's just a weird, weird thing. But yeah. it was a great lesson for me because I hear I, I, you know, I gave six years of my life and I almost felt like a criminal when I left, oh, man. which sucked. Yeah. Not to him, yeah. but to some of the people there. Oh, it's just that. weird. And so you then leveraged that and you went straight into what? I went out, left, uh, actually went, moved out here to Hermosa Beach. Oh, beautiful. California, Hermosa Redondo area, and, and uh, I started coaching. And then I started doing the only thing I knew how to do, which was sell seminar tickets. Yeah, right. So I'm like, well, shit. But this now to your own I'm just going to sell my own. So you can yeah. imagine, right? Yeah. I'm walking into car dealerships and mortgage and saying, hey, listen, uh, do, I do peak performance workshops. I'm doing a big event here in uh, uh, Marina Del Rey or Santa Monica on this date in preparation for that. We're doing some complimentary peak performance workshops. What days do you have your sales meetings? You're like, well, that, well, who's the, um, who's doing the event? Me, you know. So then you're going in front of these people at the mortgage brokers. You're talking about it, and you're selling yourself to come see yourself. And it was a wild trip, man. Wow, it's a, it was a paradigm. I had to get over that hump. So you were actually going into companies, providing free workshops as your leverage to then sell off the back end into the, the sell myself programs. at the workshop yes. to go fill yeah. my own event. Yeah, and I did that for I think almost two years here in L.A. And I was like, yeah. I, I didn't have, I wasn't able to scale. Yeah. And I just knew, I'm like, I don't, and I didn't really like LA. So I moved, took my wife, and we moved to Vegas. But I think there's a really good um, lesson in there for, because there's, you know, public speaking has become almost like the new, the new. <laughs> coaching. Oh my God. You know, well, yeah, when coaching, now yeah. speaking, everyone wants to be a speaker, but you know, nobody wants to do the work. They just want to put a Facebook ad up and hope that, you know, 50 people show Someone up. Someone hires, yeah, yeah. When you look at the, like, you know, you're the, 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 again, I love the old school nature. And that was a beautiful thing about K2. We had, you know, Brian, Tracy, and Tom Hopkins. Oh, man. All this old school nature coming out. And the old school nature is really, you, if the hustle doesn't come to you, you go to the hustle. Yeah. You know, and that's what I love. Like how, how many young people these days would go, well, I'm going to go and, you know, do a free workshop in time, inside an organization to then sell off the back versus just, well, I, I tried to sell them on the telephone, but they didn't buy. Yeah. It's a totally different paradigm. And so was it seamless? Did it just naturally take off or did you like go, what the fuck have I done? Well, I was just basically, you know, I was just doing one event to the other, but yeah. I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't scaling because back in those days, they just, you know, like there was no automation like there is now. Yeah, like okay. nowadays, it's a total different ball game. But back in those days, 
I mean, we, email, we weren't even using that that much at the time. It wasn't like it is now. Mm. So, I mean, you know, you're calling people and you're booking meetings and there's... Was it a tough period for, for, for a while, like once you left to build your own? Yeah, I mean, of course, you're coming out of it. I mean, I had money because I left, I left Tony, but it's just like, I wasn't committed to that. I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do yet, Kerwin. Right. So that's, I just did what I knew so how to of, do. A a little lost, man. I was lost, but yeah. I just, all I, I was doing that for six years selling tech. I just knew how to do that. I knew how to make money. So I just went out and made money. Mm. And then I do my own events and I'm like, ah, you see, I know I make, I can do it. I'm good at it, but ah, I wasn't there yet. And so I just went out to Vegas and we started, uh, I said, I'm gonna build my keynote speaking business. And that's what I did. Yeah, right. Because I just, I didn't want to, I had a lot of negative emotion attached to all the things that you know about that people don't know about, like yeah. filling the room. <laughs> the industry. The, in, the industry. You know, filling loves. the room. And, it's you know, a tough all, industry. And, and when you're doing it on your own, mm. when you're starting mm. out, it's very difficult. There's a yeah. lot of moving parts. And, I, and I, I just, that wasn't what I wanted to do at the time. So I just started my keynote business, started ramping up, you know, using social media, uh, doing the things I know how to do. I own my own market first. That's what I know how to do. I knew how to own my market. Yep. If I could own my own market, then I could go national. Yeah. So I became the, you know, the most requested speaker in Las Vegas. Wow. And, um, you know, I started connecting with speakers bureaus and started getting booked. And I was talented enough to book myself because I knew how to market. I was ahead of the game. Mm. Uh, because in the, in the midterm, I went to work for this uh, internet company that was doing stuff. Uh, I worked with as a regional, uh, a regional sales manager. Do you know who John Asaraf is? Of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so John and I worked together. Yeah at bamboo.com. No kidding. Yeah, it was a first virtual tour for real estate agents. Yeah, so John yeah. was a national sales manager. Yeah, right. I was a regional sales manager. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So Small I spent a world. couple years there with John, and that's where I learned all the, um, you know, all the internet stuff and all the tech stuff that I wouldn't have got before. So that really set me up when I left there. Right. So I was a way ahead of the curve for somebody my age. Okay. So, and I'm, you know, I'm still way ahead of the curve. Because I've noticed that you're very digital. You've got a, you've got a, good, so. a strong digital footprint. For my age, I'm yeah. way ahead. Of- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and then that's that's what I did. So I just started building my career in, in Vegas and. You know that's that's where we are today. Yeah. Now, obviously, we met another beautiful, another beautiful woman. Yeah, yeah. So my wife, I uh, I divorced my previous wife. Uh, shoot, was well, almost ten years ago. But um, you know, I think I I told you this story. I don't know if I did or not, but I had a, I had a tough marriage. She was uh, unstable. You know, I'll, I'll take responsibility for half of everything, but just it was a tough marriage. Yeah. And so I divorced her, and um, it was it was a tough. She's it was a little crazy. Um, and I was totally sincere that I was never going to get married again. Ever, ever, ever. <laughs> I had two beautiful kids. Yeah. You know the feeling. I got yeah. kids and all of a sudden I had choices now. I could go do things. I was flying on the weekends and going skiing and doing things I hadn't done in the past. So, you mm. know, I was like, oh man, this is great. I was the, I probably had my kids 80% of the time even oh, on, the, on the divorce because yeah, right. I wanted them. And yeah. she was, she was attempting to get herself together. So I took them and we had a 50-50 split, but I had them most of the time. And uh, we were, you know, I was just, I'd meet women. I'd meet all the women at airports because that's all the place, airports and events. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that would be my thing. I'd, I'd meet women. I'd say, hey, listen, I, um, I'm never, ever getting married again. I'm not interested in that. Um, but I'm a great time. How about dinner on Friday? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good pitch. It's like, I don't, <laughs> but that's, from the platform to the, yeah. uh, to the pub. And yeah. so I met, I met, you know, many women like that. And I met this girl, one of those girls, a woman named Jennifer. I was, I was, I got hired by the head coach of the Phoenix Suns to help him with his 
leadership skills. So I was out in Phoenix working with him. And my current wife was in Phoenix doing a master voice lesson class because she was a headline singer. Then we were flying back to Vegas. We didn't know each other. I'm on the Southwest Airlines flight and she sits next to me, not right next to me, but there was a, and we started chatting. And uh, that's what I said to her. I said, ah, because she, you know, I, she was dating this guy and coming, this is a great story. She's coming out of this relationship and she's dating this multimillionaire guy out of LA um, who I won't say who he is because he owns a major company that everybody would know who he is. <laughs> and so uh, I said, uh, she was pulling out of this relationship and I was like, well, I said, you know, you're attractive and you'll have no problem. It'll be great. I'm just trying to make her feel good. I don't know exactly what my words were. And she goes, well, what about you? And I'm like, oh, I'm not interested in, in any kind of thing like that. So she thought I was gay. (laughs) (laughs) So she's chatting it up. We're talking about everything for the next hour. So she's gonna say that. She's safe. (laughs) I got a pink shirt on. I'm talking with my hands. So she thinks I'm gay. (laughs) So we just started chatting it up and we uh, found out she lived in my same community. She Mm -hmm. lived in the same country club as I. She lived in her her ex-boyfriend's house in my same country club. Wow. So we were like hanging out every day and going to the gym and, you know, proximity is power. Mm. So, and it was great because I'd see her every day and no makeup and she really wasn't that attractive to me. I wasn't attracted to her when I met her because she didn't look good at all. She had no makeup, her hair was jacked up. She had stuff on her shirt and, but this that was is on that flight. Yeah, it was on that flight. Yeah, it was yeah. perfect though, because that's, you but then I, I went, past. she goes, hey, by the way, I'm doing, you know, I'm, she was the headline singer at the Rio. She was doing uh, six shows a night and she goes, come by and see me. And I came by and saw her and I was like, ooh, that's not what I saw in the airplane. <laughs> There's something about a woman with a voice, isn't there? Well, just in the whole, you know, I mean, it was a very, very sexy show and I did not expect that. So obviously that changed my mind a little bit. So she stage sold you. Yeah, well, she totally sold me. <laughs> yeah. She totally, From stage, she no, nonetheless. She totally did. <laughs> we just uh, kept it slow and, and she really helped me soften my heart. She's the one that helped mm. me. Um, progress as a human being, you know, because I think I, I was kind of scarred up from that divorce. It was kind of hard, um, cynical maybe. Yeah. So she helped me a lot. And she's been a, an important part of your yeah, life, definitely. I can tell. And then curveball. What's that? Then a curveball. Yeah, yeah, so literally I, <clears throat> we're, we're, we've, we're barely together. I think we're just getting married or just got married and I'm just not feeling good, Kerwin. I'm, yeah, we go, my, my client had a, he's got a condo or a house in Vail. So he says, Dan, go, to, go up to Vail for my place and take your girl skiing. And so we went up there for the weekend. And I remember we skied in the morning, came back down and it was like noon. I'm drinking a whole bunch of vodka and cranberries down at the bar. And uh, we, we had to leave and we get to the, the hospital. I mean, not the hospital. We get to the uh, airport and I'm, I'm not feeling good. And I literally am just not feeling good. And anyway, the short story is I had AFib, which means that your heart is out of whack. Your heart, yeah. top of your heart's moving at a different pace than the back of your heart. So you're kind of dizzy, you feel funky. I got AFib too. Yeah. Yeah, I got it. First time I had it. And, and so they, Jennifer called the paramedics because she didn't know it was, I was laying on the floor in the hospital, in the uh, hotel, just laying there. So they come and they say, hey buddy, uh, you know, we're not, you can't get on the flight. On the flight, you have AFib. I'm like, what the hell's that? So I just never forget this. I mean, I remember when they shut the doors on me in the back of the ambulance. I had no idea what was going on. I didn't know if I was going to see my kids again. I mean, I'm like, what the hell's going on? Get back, you know, a couple hours later, it comes out, goes back into normal. And the doctor says, hey, were you drinking? 
I'm like, yeah. He goes, ah, it happens. They, people come up here in altitude and they call it happy heart. They drink a lot. Heart starts going crazy. It's called happy heart. I'm like, oh, okay. That's not, not no big deal. Diagnosis. Anyway, it starts happening a lot. I start getting AFib a lot. And I'm going to the doctor and they're like, oh, you need an ablation. You got some, you Wolf know. Parkinson's what? Yeah, I got some I stuff going on. <laughs> I literally had the same thing. Really? Did you yeah. have a coronary ablation? Yeah, coronary ablation. Went into AFib on the table. They had to knock me out and they had to defib me five times to get me back to normal. Holy yeah. cow. I woke up feeling like I hit by a freight truck. I'm sure you did. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, so, so people don't know what that means is that his heart was crazy. They hit you with the paddles? Yeah. Yeah, just like you see on TV. Well, before that, like, let's talk what they did. They, they put an incision in your groin. Right. They run a wire up to your heart. And yes. And they electrocute a nerve across your heart. Yes. Heart not happy. No. <laughs> and so my heart, like, I don't know what with you. My mind just went to straight at 220 heartbeats. And it's like boom, boom, boom. Mm. And they're like, whoa, what's going on Ooh. here? And they hit me with a big dose of beta blocker. And uh, didn't come down. And they're like, okay, Mr. Ray, look, um, we're just going to bring a few more people in here and we're just going to knock you out just to get your heart back in order. And literally within 30 seconds, there was like 12 people and it was like like a like a cart comes in and there's 12 people and everyone's running around. I'm like, oh, is everything okay? That's scary. Yeah. That's scary. That's right, Mr. Ray. And then, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so they, they put this thing up my groin. Uh, and it's crazy because you just find out how, in it, how do you want to say it? You know, everybody makes mistakes. So I'm pretty, I'm six foot eight. They can tell when I'm laying on the bed and my feet are hanging out that I'm taller than most, right? So they literally, they told me this afterwards that they, they put the incision in, they put that thing all the way up there and then they realized that they put it too short. Oh no. Pulled the thing back down. Oh, Think no. about that. Oh, Why would you even no. tell somebody that? Oh yeah, let's stop telling <laughs> So they did, they did that. Oh, and they did the, anyway, I come out, um, I go home the next day and then I can barely breathe. They checked me back in the next day and I had con- contracted uh, some kind of pneumonia, uh, pulmonary pneumonia while yeah. I was in there. Yeah, right. In there for a couple of days. The short story is I keep getting worse. I keep getting worse. Pretty soon I can't even go upstairs. I can barely walk. I'm sweating. I'm laying in bed. I literally think I was going to die. I mean, the low point was I had multiple low points where, you know, here I was this, you know, ex-athlete who is strong and, and confident and eating well and exercising every day, Kerwin, just that was, I, I was that kind of guy. And pretty soon I just couldn't do anything and I couldn't figure it out. And, you know, when you don't know what's wrong, like when you don't have a goal, you feel lost, mm. you know, like you're supposed to go somewhere. Well, which, where? I don't know. You feel lost. And so I just remember laying in bed and just thinking about, okay, this, I guess this is going to be it. You know, I'm in I'm 55 or whatever I was at the time. And you know, I've had a good life and you start justifying things. And, you know, I, like I said, in your, when I talked to your team the other day, you start thinking about weird stuff like, you know, which one of your friends is going to date your wife. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. enough to wake you up right there. <laughs> Find a cure. Yeah. <laughs> but you think about, and, and you, you know, is, I'm never going to see my daughter get married or my son get married, but you just come to grips with it and go, yeah, but I did a great job. They're, they're mm. self-sufficient, but you literally concede to death. You know, like it's okay. And uh, then I finally went to Mayo Clinic. I, was, I thought I was going to die one night, literally. There's many nights I didn't go to sleep because I thought I was going to die. And then one night I just knew I was going to die. And I got on a red eye and, and flew out to Rochester, Minnesota, where the Mayo Clinic is. I had an appointment on the books for like 14 days later, but I thought I was going to die that night. So I literally took a red eye to that emergency room. Wow. Because I'd been to the emergency rooms in Vegas and I know what they do. You they just put you do. in there and they yeah. let you go in the morning. So anyway, they got me up there and they said, dude, there's something wrong with you for sure, but you're not gonna die tonight. So that made me feel good. Say, but come back on your appointment 
and you'll be fine. So I came back from my appointment, you know, two weeks later, whatever it was, and they had me there for nine days, but the doctor looked at me and he goes, I think I know what you have, but I got to clinically prove it. So give me a couple days. Sure enough, he says, you have this disease called amyloidosis. And of course, I never heard of what it was. I never knew what it was, but it's a very rare, incurable blood disease that kills 40% of the people that get it in the first 12 months. Mm. And so, you know, as shocking as that sounds, I was so excited to find the diagnosis because now I could actually do something about it. Yeah. So we literally started chemotherapy right away. And so, you know, that journey was just crazy. And, and all the whole time I'm doing keynote talks. You know, I'm still doing keynotes. I'm doing keynotes. But it was weird because that's when I... I've always been a believer at the power of the mind, and I always believe that um, my mind can do amazing things, like anybody's can, but I believe it. And so I literally believe I could heal myself. So I started visualizing. I create this image of the, of the, you know, the mitochondria going in there and eating these cells and my white blood cells and fixing everything. And these are the images I have in my mind, and I would do these visualization, visualization techniques and listen to these audios every night. And I would take this chemotherapy, but I would call it the healing serum. Yeah, right. Right? Because yeah. who wants to get poison put in their body? Yeah. So I would go to the Mayo Clinic and I would say, I'm going for my healing serum. You know, they hooked me up. And then I was on this trial and I would talk to people about this trial that it was, you know, all the, you know, the DNA from Elon Musk and all these people that was going oh. into, on into my body. And uh, I said, I had it, I call it the OMG serum. They had this thing hanging up next to my bed, putting this stuff into me. It was supposed to clear my heart. It was, a t- it was a trial. And I would call it the OMG serum. I would call it, I took the DNA from, who would I say? It was Kevin O'Leary, Mark Cuban, and uh, Elon Musk, oh, o- wow. OMG series. Wow. So I said, yeah, they're hooking me up to the OMG serum. And so I could tell I can feel it going through my body. I feel more alive and feel like a better leader. And I would just talk, I would just talk about that stuff all the time. So I was literally just talking it out into the existence, out into the existence that I was healing with every breath I was taking and every time I got stuck with a needle. And, and of course there were challenges along the way, you know, that some chemotherapy does, you know, that's poison. So the challenge is it messes up other parts of your body. So the first kind, I made some progress, but then my whole legs were going numb because I have uh, amyloidosis in my nerves too. So I, right now I could, you know, barely feel my feet. It's kind of like I'm walking in snow all the time. So my whole legs went numb and I got off that. Went to another kind of chemotherapy called Revlimide, which was a pill, and that threw me into AFib, and I literally felt like I was gonna die, so they took me off of that and put me on this other type. I don't remember what it was called, but it was a, an IV type, and I was on that for a while, and I started getting numb again, so, but my numbers went down, so they're almost normal, wow. but, but my body was kind of breaking up. I showed you part of my yeah. body, how I'm kind of like, I got holes in my body, and so right now I'm on this maintenance drug. It's for lymphomic leukemia. And the, the whole journey has been incredible. Thank God for the way my dad raised me. Thank God for college basketball because it's like I'm in another fight because I've got to fight for my drugs. I've got to fight for my insurance. I've got to fight for this. I'm not able to get drugs because the drug that I'm getting is not approved for amyloidosis because it's not coded, oh. right? It's for leukemia. So I can't get the insurance to pay for it. So oh. I have to get it directly from the manufacturer. Oh. So here I'm trying to stay alive yeah. and I have to sell the manufacturer on the fact that I need their drug but I can't pay for it. Mm. You know, it's just crazy. But you're winning. I'm winning. You are winning. And I think that's the important thing. Like, you know, because most people in a situation with a diagnosis like yours, you know, they'd be almost wrapping themselves in cotton wool. They're like, oh, I can't, you know, I can't work. I, yeah. I can't, but you're mm-hmm. not only working, you're jumping on planes, you're speaking in front of crowds, you're flying all over the world. Like you're, you're living your mission. 
Why do you do what you do? That's a good question. Uh, probably going to start crying, but I'll do the it's best okay. I can to get through it. You're in a safe place, man. So, you know, <clears throat> when, you get, when you face death, um, you realize that there's two ways to look at it. Like, almost your life is meaningless, meaning because when you die, here's what's going to happen. The word's going to get out, and then people that love me and know me are going to go, oh, my God, I can't believe Dan Lear died. And that people that don't know me that might have heard of me go, oh, my God, Dan Lear died. But then there's a funeral, and the people who love me go to the funeral, but the people who don't really love me, they don't forgot about it the next day. And then the people that do love me, they think about me once in a while, but I'm gone. It's over. And I just realized, like, how fragile life is. Mm. Because I saw myself, like, hypothetically at a funeral where people are doing their thing and see my wife crying and my kids crying and then it's over and then you're gone you know and I think about <clears throat> you know I don't know how long I have um could have five years could have 10 years could have two years but you know I just figured for the time that I have <clears throat> um I'm gonna I'm gonna do the best I can I'm gonna you know see if I can help as many people as I can I'm gonna impact as many people as I can because those are the things that I think you get measured by. And that's why I'm doing it. What do you want to be remembered for? Um, you know, I think this depends on who you ask. Um, but, you know, if you want my kids or my, my wife, just a loving, caring person who is <clears throat> always looking to, to, for goodness, you know, I think in the big picture, I think that's the same, the same picture. I want to be remembered of a, a person who is who was committed to excellence, who cared about people, and who was willing to do whatever it takes to, to find a way to get it done. And I think that's what I've exhibited, you know. I've uh, stayed the course, and, you know, I don't let things knock me off, off track. So, you know, it's been great, though, and I think I told you that. It sounds corny as hell. It sounds cheesy. It sounds cliche, but, nope. you know, getting diagnosed was the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah, I'm going to be saying that. Yeah. It, sounds so, it sounds stupid. No. But... Because of that, you know, um, I'm able to get in touch with my feelings. I, I'm a better communicator. I'm more transparent and more loving and more kind. So it's not like I wasn't a good person before, but I was protecting myself or protected, I guess. And I just, there's just no need for it. So... And, and it's interesting, as I mentioned before, like with your condition, your heart literally is building up a, a calcification, like a wall around yeah. itself. Yeah. So the quick synopsis for our viewers and listeners yeah. is the amyloidosis is produced by the bone marrow. So the bone marrow creates these proteins that go out in your body. And just for the sake of the illustration, say the proteins are shaped like squares and rectangles and circles. And they go out and they fit in places and they, they're building blocks for your body. Some of my proteins are rogue proteins. So the medical community says they're misfolded. So they're not folded like a circle or a square. They're, say mine's a squiggly line. And it comes out of there and it's not useful. It's not good for anything. And it's non-perishable and non-biodegradable. So it's floating around. It doesn't leave my body. The challenge is it's sticky. It's a sticky protein. So it sticks onto your organs and it starts to accumulate. And then they fiberize and they just start to put pressure on it and just shut it down. That's what's happening to my heart. 
So as I speak here today, we've done a great job of the amyloidosis. We've the, the, the chemotherapy and my mental, my mental visualization has, has killed the source of the disease where it's not killed, but the, I'm down to where it's almost normal, mm. the level of light chain proteins in my body, mm. which is incredible. So I'm not p- producing anymore the disease, the proteins, but they don't have a, they don't have a method of getting the amyloids off of your organs. Mm. And that's what the trial was for. So I still have congestive heart failure and I still, you know, I don't act like I have it. I have to watch what I eat, sodium intake. I eat clean. I exercise as much as I can. My body's kind of jacked up. Um, But, you know, you just deal with it. And so, you know, I never thought there'd be a day where I wouldn't get up and exercise. But that's what I, I, you know, but I I live a totally different life now than I used to. I exercise, but not like I used to. Mm. You know, exercise for me is like going to a yoga class or walking on the treadmill. Yeah. Where it used to be, you know, a couple hours of basketball or, you know, running or, you know, something where you're exerting yourself. And so my whole lifestyle has changed. And it's interesting hearing you talk um, through your Mm. healing and saying words like, you know, I I learned how to feel. I learned how to. I softened, my heart softened, you know, as yeah. a result of the relationships you've had. And it's almost like you can see there's that biophysical component where, you know, I've always been of the belief that we're given the things that are required in order to give us the lessons we need in order to evolve as a spirit, a human, you know, a soul. Yeah, yeah. And I just think it's made me, you know, because of that, <clears throat> like I said, because of my upbringing, I uh, wasn't very expressive, didn't share my feelings, didn't mm. care about feelings because feelings never mattered. And so then once I got sick, you know, my wife is totally opposite. She's loving and caring and kind. She's a healer. She's an angel. Clearly. She yeah. is. Have you heard of Joe Dispenza? Dr. Oh, yeah. Have you, yeah. So you do some of his work? I've, I've listened to him. Yeah, I've watched good. it. I, I believe yeah. the same type of thing. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, I'm, I'm doing everything. I, like I told you when I met you, I'm doing everything I can to heal myself because mm-hmm. I didn't want to get to the end if that were to happen and be sitting in my bed about to die and say, damn, I wish I would have done this. Yes, tried that. And so I, you know, changed my eating and all that stuff. It's no wonder that you've created the success that you have in, in life, but also in, especially in the area of sales, because one of the things that I've observed with, you know, the greatest salespeople in the world are the ones that have the most mental resourcefulness. Absolutely. They have the most mental resilience. They have that, that grit. And oftentimes that is, you know, surrounded by discipline and structure, yes. you know, frameworks. And, you know, when you hear your entire story, you hear the discipline, you hear the frameworks and, you know, that resourcefulness, that resilience, that grit. And, you know, grit for those people who may be hearing that word of resilience for the first time, you know, it is that ability to suffer. And, you know, when you look at the what you went through as a basketball player, when you look at what you went through as a salesperson and you look at what you're going through right now, like it's, it's really humbling to be one of your witnesses in life and, and see how, you know, you are living what it is that you were here to do. Like you're yeah. literally embodying yeah. what it is that you're here to do. And so if there's one thing I can say to you, mate, you're, you're creating an incredible legacy, <clears throat> an incredible legacy um, that, um, you know, you should be really proud of. And yeah. I think it's also incredible, like we share so many parallels. Now you've written like four books. Yes. Uh, one of them's on parenting. Yes. Like um, we're talking now about doing something together in that space, which is really exciting. So what, what are the books that you've got? Well, the book on parenting it was a number one bestseller. That's amazing. And it's my only number one bestseller, <clears throat> but it's, it was called um, uh, is, your child wired, is Your Child Wired for Success? 
Mm. And so I'm a big psychology guy. I'm, you know, I'm the research guy that's, you know, uh, Wilhelm Wundt and Watson and Skinner and all these guys. So I'm, I understand all that behavioral psychology stuff. And so when you look at how you raise kids, you know, you can have two kids from the same family and one kid is this real, you know, that kind of kid who wants to go door to door and make stuff happen, an entrepreneur and the other person who doesn't want to do anything. Mm. And it has to do with how they're raised and what mm. the expectations are. So we really, I talked about in my book of, is your child wired for success? Is literally how to wire your child for success. I because what that. you're looking to do is you're looking to create a, a creature, if, that, if you want to say that, a, a human, a being that can go out and navigate themselves through the world of all these obstacles that are coming their way. You know, that's what life is. Every single day you get up and you're dealing with people who are, you know, not literally, but you're getting attacked and you're getting surprised and you're getting uh, landmines. People are looking to blow you up. I don't mean that literally, but there's yeah. just stuff that happens in life. And so if you're not- well, Sometimes okay, the sun shines, sometimes it's stormy. Sometimes it's a fucking cyclone. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so you've got to be able to do, deal mm. with that. And so if you aren't raising your kids that way, then how can you expect them to be that way, right? If, if you're solving all their problems for them, then how can you expect them to be problem solvers? Mm. And that's hard for parents to do. So it, it breaks it down in specific instruction and how specifically to do that. And so it, I, I'm just a big believer in that. I started doing that with my kids. I have a whole system that I do how to program your kids for success. Starts on how you talk to them, how you talk to your kids. You know, Someone. we were always talking to our kids about what's gonna happen not not disciplining them for what didn't happen little stuff like just talking to your kids and programming them like you know you're an amazing kid you have such great manners you are so respectful that's incredible so when my you know 3 year old kids walking into a five star restaurant i say hey daniel here's what's going to happen we're going to be here for about an hour and the first thing they're going to do is come by and ask you for some water you're going to say yes please and then you're gonna look at the menu, we're gonna help you pick something up, but you're gonna use your patience and your big boy voice to order because that's how they're gonna hear you. And so I would instruct him on what's gonna happen so he'd never be surprised. And so he would interact with adults and then feel self-confident mm. that shit, I, could, I belong here. Yeah. Right? That's cool. All the way through life. That's so cool. And you've got uh, three other books as well? What are they? Yeah, the, I've got a book that I wrote. Uh, first one is called The 10-Minute Coach, yeah. which is just more like on the psychology, little daily stuff, uh, little daily messages on beliefs and attitude and perseverance and things like that. Um, the re most recent book I wrote was a book um, uh, a book on speaking called Present Better Than Steve Jobs. I love that. So I yep. love, yeah, Secrets for, to a Perfect Presentation, uh, which has done really well for us. And then the other book I wrote, uh, there'd be time... Right when I met my wife, Jennifer, prior to meeting her, I was doing events with, we wrote this book called Men, me and this other business partner I have named Mike. Uh, we wrote this book called Men, 10 Secrets Every Woman Should Know from Two Guys That Do. <laughs> and so we were literally talking about how to communicate with yeah. men. Yeah, right. And so women love to know that. Yeah, so we, would, we were doing these live events all over the country. Uh, it's just Mike and I, oftentimes on sitting on bar stools, just talking to women about sex, communication, that was incredibly wow. valuable for me. Wow, wow, Just wow. to articulate and understand women and hear and be able to speak, and, and uh, that was amazing. So, so yeah. where, where can people go to find more about Dan, more about your books, yep. more about booking yep. you? Thank you. All my books are on Amazon, yep. obviously. Uh, my website is danlear.com. That's D-A-N-L-I-E-R. That's where you can 
find out about what's happening, book me to speak, uh, speak all over the world, uh, get hired by companies like Pfizer, AT&T, Verizon, BMW. So I do corporate keynote talks, which means I get hired to do customized presentations for conferences, maybe on sales or leadership or peak performance or an overall company message. Uh, so I can be found uh, my website, all social media, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, just Dan Lear, D-A-N-L-I-E-R. And if there's one piece of advice that you'd like to leave people with, if there's one thing that you wanna leave us. Before that, I wanna tell you one more thing about my podcast. Oh, please. Please, yeah. and then I'll talk about it. So my wife and I do this podcast that I'm so excited about, Kerwin, and it's called The Business of Love. I saw that, I really love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, so as an entrepreneur, you know, as a business, yeah, you'll tough. do anything. You'll do anything to improve your business, though. You'll go to courses, you'll learn how to communicate, you'll take a marketing class, you'll be more patient, you'll do whatever you need to do to, to help elevate your company. And if we use that same type of mentality in our intimate relationships, our relationships would elevate. Mm. And so we just talk about, my wife and I, she's very intelligent, very sharp, she's crafty, she's been an entertainer, she's traveled all over the world. And so we talk about business and applying that into your personal life. We call it the business of love. I love it. So you can, if you have an Android or a Google phone, you can go to Stitcher, yep. and it's called the business of love. If you've got an iPhone, just go to iTunes. It drops every Sunday at eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and so, People are watching it before football with their wives. <laughs> so I encourage you to do that. Um, the one thing I'd like to leave people with, you know, there's so many ways I can go with this, but <clears throat> I believe this, that if you wanna make something happen in your life, if you wanna <clears throat> write a book, if you wanna be a top sales professional, if you wanna open up a yoga studio, if you wanna change the world, you can do that. You just have to put a game plan together reverse engineer it, and start with your own psychology. Mm. The problem is most people don't see themselves in that place. Mm. So for instance, the, the person that wants to own a yoga studio, that might be a passion, but they really can't see themselves owning a yoga studio. It would be a nice thing to do, but they really can't see it. So until you can see it, you're never gonna actually do it. So you have to really work in your psychology first. And that's what I would tell people, is that anything you're gonna do, it starts with your mindset because I believe that 90% of your success is what's going on inside of your head. Mm. I really believe that. There's so many people that are skilled out there. Skills are not hard to find. No. People that are competent and people that can do it is hard to find. Talent's overrated. Yes. So yeah. <laughs> mindset, baby. Dan Leah, it's been an absolute honor and a pleasure. You are Mr. Unstoppable. Thank you for stopping by. Oh, and I, I got to tell you, it's an honor to be here. It's an honor to be at your program, and I just love what you're doing, and I'm a big fan of yours. Thank you, mate. Appreciate it. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Dan Lear. Yes. This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast-growth program for business. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh. Share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know that your comments help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements, upcoming podcasts, events, and much more, please jump onto the website, KerwinRay.com and also check us out on all social media on the handle at Kerwin Ray. Thanks for joining us.